0: is when you're starting a business like nothing is in your favor the whole world is against you and frankly nobody cares about what you're doing so you've got a much better chance of maximizing your opportunity for success if you're not focused on just one thing I think it's really important to have a north star and, and you know values and, and things that guide you but if you're just so committed to this one thing and doing it this one way my experience anyway is that it's quite difficult to to succeed like that.
1: Hello and welcome to UmiCast, a podcast about business and entrepreneurship. At Umi, we make it easier for businesses to do more and go further by finding and packaging the best information expertise in finance so you can make better business decisions more quickly. This conversation is with the CEO of one of the UK's most exciting and fast-growing technology companies. Johnny Grubin is the founder and chief executive of SoPost. Now Sopost is on a mission to develop the most powerful product sampling platform in the world. And it's already pretty well on its way with offices in Newcastle, London, New York, Paris, and before long they'll be in Berlin as well. The company works with global brands like Avida, Philosophy, Image Skin Care, Iborian and Donna Karen and it's won numerous awards for innovation and entrepreneurship with this online sampling platform that is disruptive and innovative and future-facing, digital and all of those good things that we like to talk about. Now on to Johnny. So Johnny describes himself as an accidental entrepreneur. I think a better way would be to say he's a serial entrepreneur, he set up his first business when he was just 14 years old, he'd been messing around with code and, uh, and uh, websites and digital advertising when he was just 12. Um, so someone who really lives and breathes business and who from a young age has been committed to whatever ventures he's, he's been involved with. In this podcast, we're going to cover Johnny's origin story. Including how he dropped out of university after just three months to pursue a business venture, uh, how he found himself down and out in London when said venture failed, uh, and the roller coaster ride he's been on with SoPost since 2012. Uh, we also discuss Johnny's views on the world of marketing and retail and technology and e-commerce, which SoPost really kind of sits at the nexus between those those different areas, and explore what it takes to be an entrepreneur in the 20th the 21st, sorry, century, uh, because Johnny has some really interesting views on that. Uh, So I hope you enjoy this one with serial entrepreneur and Soapost founder, Johnny Grubin. Uh, Well, thank you for doing this, Johnny. Uh, I've been really excited to speak to you about the journey you've been on with Soapost over the last sort of 10 years or so. Um, I think what you guys are doing in terms of helping brands run these product sampling campaigns is is super innovative and and really future facing and obviously you've had quite a lot of success with that so that's really great uh it was interesting because the more i read into your story uh the more i found that the kind of entrepreneurial journey you've been on actually started quite a long time before so post and that's where i wanted to start really so i think I know I heard that you, you set up your first business when you were like 12 years old. So I, I have to kind of ask a little bit about that. So yeah, tw- a 12-year-old entrepreneur, you can kind of hear that very often. So I think if we can start there and maybe just work forward. That be-
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it feels like that was a very long time ago now. I mean, I reflect on this quite a bit and it's, you know, I turned 30 a few months ago, but more than half my life has been spent doing something entrepreneurial with, brief stints of education sort of patched in in between all of that. Um, and I, you know, I I kind of think of myself almost as an accidental entrepreneur. Like when I was growing up, I was always, I guess you could say I was always a bit of a dreamer. You know, I'd have sort of these ideas and, and things that I always wanted to do. But I, I there wasn't one day when I woke up and thought, oh, I want to build a business or I want to do this thing. Like I really feel like that really happened by accident. Um, and that first business that that you alluded to just there was really born out of a hobby. Um, I, you know, when I was pre-teenage years, really quite fascinated with the internet. And I remember you know, our parents used to give us 15 minutes online every day and I'd, I'd be on the BBC or CBBC website, or I'd be, you know, on GeoCities, like building this you know, horrible clunky webpage. But I got really fascinated about all of that and you know, this idea that I could be sat in my bedroom in Newcastle building something that someone else on the other side of the world could, could see and, and, and engage with was quite fascinating to me. Um, and it's sort of off the back of that, I, I taught myself how to code, I will say, at a very basic level. Um, I'm pretty in awe of, of the stuff that people are able to do today. Um, but I ended up building websites really just for fun and, and you know, to keep, kind of keep myself Occupied as as a hobby, and then when I was twelve or thirteen, I got my first mobile phone, and at the time, I, I didn't want to spend the couple of pounds a week I was getting in pocket money on you know, wallpapers and, and screensavers. screen savers. I was much more interested in spending that cash on sweets. Um, yeah. But I, I wanted to you know I wanted to make my phone look better and and make it feel like mine. And so I taught myself how to use Photoshop and ended up creating some wallpapers and screensavers that were really just for my own own use. But what happened was that a lot of friends at school saw them and they were like, hey, can, you know, can we have that stuff as well? And so that led me to building a website that it was probably the first website I'd built that actually had a, a sort of a purpose rather than just being something that there was a bit of a hodgepodge of you know, different experiments. And I built this site and I, I put all of these things I'd created online and anyone could go on there. They could download them for free. They could do whatever they wanted with them and and it really was just about you know doing it because i was enjoying it there was no intention of making money there you know i was 12 at the time i didn't even know that you could make money on the internet um yeah but the site began to get quite a bit of traffic and someone then you know introduced me to this idea that oh johnny you should put some ads on the site and and honestly i thought that there was no way you could possibly make money online but Eventually, I, I you know got convinced that I should manage to convince my dad to let me join an affiliate network in his name because of course you had to be eighteen to sign up with yeah. them. Um, put some ads on there, and then lo and behold, about six months later, I got a check through the door for ten pounds and a penny. And I've still got right. the kind of original payslip from that. And you know, it wasn't a huge amount of money, but for a teenager doing something he's enjoying it, it was really excuse the pun, but a bit of a penny drop moment where I was like, hold on a second. I'm doing something that I really enjoy. And yes, it's only £10, but I've made some money whilst my friends are doing paper rounds or, or washing dishes or you know other chores. And that was really what got me started. And I you know, I was kind of in this position then when I was like, right, I really enjoy doing this stuff. I know it's possible to generate an income online. So how do I then go from making £10 every few months to hopefully quite a lot more? Um, and it all started from there. And then so the first business that... It sort of was intended to be a business I launched when I was 14. And that was a network of incentivized affiliate sites. So back in the early days of affiliate marketing, um, and it's you know it's grown a lot today, but the general model is that advertisers want new customers. And um, what they'll do is they're prepared to pay people like me a commission in order to drive customers to them. Um, and so what I did was I, you know, figured out that if I gave people a reason to sign up with these advertisers through me, so you know someone like eBay or, or Netflix, if I gave you incentive an incentive for doing that, you're probably more likely to do it through me than going direct. So I launched this website yeah. that essentially gave people um, a reward a, a thank you when they signed up to the advertiser through my website rather than just going to it directly, and you know if the advertiser was paying me ten pounds commission. I might take five pounds of that and spend it on your thank you. And then that five pounds on the other side was my margin and, you know, kind of my profit there. Um, So I launched that when I was 14 and, you know, it it grew over the next 18 months or so to be a network of a dozen websites, had about 75,000 people all across the UK signed up to it. And, you know, it didn't make millions, but for a, for a teenager who was just about to study for his GCSEs, it, it, it was a pretty nice income, and and you know I think that for me was kind of the tipping point where I was like, right at this point I'm kind of all in on entrepreneurship. You know I've seen what's possible. I'm really excited about it. I'd love creating things and and trying to do things. And you know sometimes I don't think it's necessarily a good thing, but I've never really been able to look back. And it, it, my path yeah. has always been very much you know I need to be building something or I need to be part of a small team that you know has this big vision and, and wants to create something that, that's never been done before.
1: Yeah I think the key thing that you that you said there was kind of you were always looking ahead to what's next and of course what came next for you um, was this decision to go to university um, and I know you, you only spent a few months there so do you want to kind of talk through that kind of thought process a little bit because I, I imagine that um, you, you, you maybe. be it felt like you had to go to university, but you had this business in the back of your mind or probably in the front of your mind and that kind of never really went away.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And honestly, there were a lot of things going on there. And at the point when I was moving down to London to go to uni, I was involved in two businesses at the time, one which was my own called Live Newcastle, which was all about supporting independent retail and leisure businesses here. And then another one called Send Social, which a group of seven or eight of us were working on. And you know, we can talk about that in a bit more detail in a bit. But for me, it was always the case that I knew I wanted to do my own thing. But at that point, I didn't think I could sort of leave school and then uh, and then just dive full time into my own business. I, I felt like none of my ventures were progressed enough to the point where I'd be able to make a success of that to be completely honest, there was a bit of, you know, I want to have the student experience as well. You know, Freshers' Week is quite fun. Um, You know, London's obviously a really amazing, exciting city. And, and, you know, I felt like it can be a very lonely place if you don't know people and actually going to Union and starting there um, could be an, an easier entry into that city. And then the other aspect of it was, and I think it's changed a bit now, but, you know, at the time it was very much expected that you would go to uni. Um, and if you, if you're not going to uni, you're, you're a bit of a failure. Um, and I think, you know, even if I was at the point where I was fully confident that I could do my A-levels, go off on my own and do my own thing. I think in terms of how my school looked at it and how, you know, wider society might've looked at it, it, it was just something that wasn't really acceptable. And it was yeah. almost, you know, decided for me that, that you were going to go to uni. But that said, when I was, you know, applying for unis, when I'd accepted my offer, when I was going down, I never for a second thought that I was going to finish my course. And the course I, I chose, one of the main reasons I chose it was actually because it had the least teaching hours out of everything. And it was like, okay, I can take this box, but actually I'll be able then to spend as much time as I want doing my own things as well. Okay.
1: Okay. So even though you did go to uni, there was always kind of, it was always uh, uh, on the table that you wouldn't kind of finish the degree because you you were really hoping that you would have the time to, uh, to make this, these business ventures go off. And you mentioned.
0: Yeah, uh, exactly. And for me, I, I saw, I saw uni as sort of a way to you know, get to know London a bit more to make some friends. And it was less about the academic side of things and more about like, actually that's a stage in my life that I kind of want to get through and and want to go through. And I'd always said, you know, when I'm at the point where it makes sense to drop out, I'm going to do that. I don't know if I necessarily believed that I would. And I don't know if I realized it would happen so soon after I started, but I I think if you ask my parents, they'd probably also say, yeah, we never thought Johnny would actually finish his degree. Yeah. It's interesting though, Johnny, because
1: most young people who go to university, they don't really have like a a plan as such. I mean, obviously, if you're doing like a a, a specific kind of degree and you've got a career in mind, then you are applying quite a strategic approach to it. But, um, you know, a lot of people go and and, and that's really where they learn how to think in, in a, in a strategic way. And they learn to think about business, but you were already, um, at that point, kind of before yeah. you went to university, and it's it's yeah, it's 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 quite unusual, I suppose, and, and, and probably a product of the fact that you kind of got into business from such a young age.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're right. It, it was unusual, and I think what I probably found funny, and actually maybe one of the reasons why you know I left so quickly was. Cause the course I was doing was business management and, you know, I, I was actually running a business outside of uni and then I'd go in and we'd have lectures on how to communicate with people or how to, you know, do a, a profit forecast. And I was just like, you know, you can learn this stuff academically or you can actually do it. <laughs> and I felt yeah. like one hour, I remember telling my friends this at the time, like one hour of actually working on my business. I felt like I was learning more from that hour than I've learned from an entire week's worth of uni. And it, it, yeah, for me, and I, I'm not saying that the degree wasn't valuable because you know I have a lot of great friends who have got a lot out of that degree course, but for me, it wasn't sort of yeah, I, I wasn't learning anything new from it, and it, it felt like a bit of a a bit of a waste of time for me anyway.
1: Yeah, I, I think something that a lot of entrepreneurs say is that you kind of learn by doing, and 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 yeah. and, and and the the kind of the, the the failure and the success that's that's all baked in, but it's really that. Well, I'll have a go and then sort of see what happens. And, and you'll learn a lot more from that than perhaps you would in, in a kind of simulated classroom environment where it's all hypothetical. I think when you've got skin in the game, uh, you do tend to take a lot more from it. So that's really interesting. I think one of the businesses that you um, sort of left university for was this Send so- Send social uh, business, which you described as a heroic failure, which I, I thought was <laughs> a, a pretty interesting way to describe it. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that, that business?
0: yeah so the idea behind this business was that you should be able to send a physical item to somebody without knowing their postal address and you're gonna think i'm crazy but where it came about was someone who's now a very good friend of mine um but who i didn't know at the time sent out a tweet saying hey i'm really dyslexic both me and my sister are traveling a lot why isn't there an easier way for me to send her a birthday present and i was one of a bunch of people who got back in touch with him over twitter and said hey you know i think that's a really cool idea i'd love to you know be part of whatever it is that you're thinking about and so this group of people who i never met before we hadn't even spoken on the phone we were like okay cool like let's get together and, and let's start a business um which was pretty amazing when you think about it um and it was really exciting as well. You know, I was doing my A-levels at the time, working with some people who were really experienced, really intelligent and you know, very successful entrepreneurs in their own right. And we ended up doing stuff that was frankly incredible. You know, we formed partnerships with a couple of really big delivery companies in the UK, which meant that from a um, product perspective, you could actually buy a label that had a, a barcode on rather than a delivery address. And we got the product to launch. And, and that was the point where I was like, okay, I'm going to drop out of uni. Um, okay. and then when I did drop out, it was really sort of a, a year and a half of just a horrible roller coaster. Um, and I think there were a lot of things that we could have done differently and we did wrong. You know, firstly, I think, you know, it, it, we can't really point the finger at ourselves too much for this, but I think the timing was wrong. You know, I think we could have done exactly what we'd done a few years later and, and had better results. But you know the way that we built the team was pretty terrible. You know it's great that you're a group of eight people who all have a semi equal share in the business pre-launch, but then when you need people to be stepping up and taking leadership positions, or you want to be thinking about raising investment, that kind of structure doesn't really work. Um, I think some of the people on the team as well. If we were to go back and do it again, we'd sort of be a bit more um, picky about you know what skills we needed in what roles. And then on the product side, you know, whilst it worked and it functioned, firstly, you know, our focus was really on um, putting this solution out with a privacy objective in mind. You know, the the hypothesis was that people don't want other people to know their addresses, whereas actually that might be the case if you're buying something or someone someone on eBay. But if I'm sending something to a friend, frankly, they don't care if I have their postcode. It's more about convenience than privacy. And we just hadn't cottoned on to that. And and the way that you had to use our product, we were saying that it was going to make things really easy. But we actually printed out every step of the flow and stuck it on the wall. And it was like a 25-step process to send an item. So we weren't making it easy. We were really, really, really complicating it and you know I dropped out of uni I was living in London didn't have an income and uh, maybe I'm stating the obvious but London is not a cheap place to be if you don't have and I found myself in this position where you know I was getting up every day trying to move the startup forward and just not getting anywhere whilst at the same time trying to ensure that you know, I, I could survive in, in this city. Um, and it was just one thing after another, just like constant roller coaster of emotions of like, you know, doing stuff that we didn't think was possible, but then also, you know, being met by you know the way we set this business up structurally just meant that we were never going to be able to get it to, to where we wanted it to be. And I was sort of really focused on it for about a year or so after dropping out of uni and we just got to the point where we said, you know what, like we can't do it anymore. Let's all let's shut it down and and go off and and do our own things. But the reason why I call it a heroic failure is because it should have succeeded. Um, and the stuff that we were doing, I still look back on it today and, you know, there were some really horrible times and I hope I never go through experiences like that again but they're also probably the things that have hardened me the most and given me the resilience to have now achieved what I've done since then but you know some of the efforts that that people on that team put in like it was heroic
1: <laughs> yeah
0: and we didn't especially- succeed but I still can't get past the fact that like I'd still look back on it and I'm like wow like we we shouldn't have done that stuff like we weren't entitled to do those things but we did and and yeah you know what it wasn't successful but one incredible journey it was
1: yeah and those experiences that you had uh heroic heroic and and and, and uh, the failure that it ultimately that was kind of informed the entrepreneur that you've become and, and obviously everything that's everything that's came since then and I think it almost sounds as if you're saying without that experience um being really thrown in at the deep end it sounds like yeah you kind of wouldn't have gotten to where you have today
0: yeah I think that's I absolutely right. You know, I think one of the, the toughest things about being a company founder is you just get punched over and over and over and over again. And honestly, I think probably one of the few things that separates me from someone who might be finding a business for the first time today is... I've just been punched so many times. <laughs> I've got that level of resilience now. And and my my threshold for pain is so much higher than what's normal that we've been able to push through all of that with Soapost. And you know, if I reflect on the last nine years of of, of Soapost, there are so many points over that journey where I think if I hadn't just been hardened by that experience with SenseSocial and, and with other ventures as well. There's no way I would have got through it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It Is it? Do you mean in terms of like? So you'd you'd invested money and time and 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 all the business's resources into something for it then to uh, fall at the final hurdle. And it's. I think is 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 that is that the sort of experience that you have where if you hadn't been hardened by previous experiences. That would just think, look, I-, I can't do this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's not so much about the investment. Obviously, you know, that is important. And, um, you know, I, I really felt the weight of that. But it was more, you know, you're kind of constantly on this roller coaster. And if I think over, you know, the early years of SOAPOS, there were so many times where the business should have died, <laughs> you know, because, um, our product fell apart overnight when you know a big customer was using it or because we were about to run out of cash or you know I could probably list off 20 other things. And that's not about like the investment that we've made into it. That is literally just like the weight of feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders and staring kind of staring death in the face. Um yeah. and just being able to say, you know what, we're gonna get through this and and we we're, we're going to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's only because of all the experiences that I've had in the past where, you know, I have just been battered and bruised and and beaten by it that you encounter this stuff. And, and you know, I think for me, it's always a case of acknowledging, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how we're going to get through this, but frankly, there is no other option but to get through it. Yeah. You have to and when you adopt it. that as your mindset, I don't know how, but you find you find a way you end up finding a way
1: yeah yeah I, I, and i think it comes down to kind of being all in as well i mean when you when you left university um i know that obviously that, that venture wasn't ultimately successful but you were all in and I, I think that's kind of hung over into soap post where yeah other other people who've just came into this and look it's just a job or it's just what i do 9 to 5 uh, you, you you don't have that kind of um, mentality because it's like well we must kind of get through this yeah um, and I think as well a lot of people um, only hear about the good things that that, that happens in a business so you've raised X amount or you've hired this many staff but like you say Johnny there's there's that kind of grisly underbelly of, of running the business where the product is uh, there's like a technical error and it goes down when a customer's trying to use it or like you, you burn through. Tons of cash, and you don't know how you're going to do payroll <laughs> and things yeah. like that. And these are things that, obviously, for, for obvious kind of commercial reasons, you wouldn't be mentioning at the time. But things that will be keeping you up at night, I imagine. Oh,
0: exactly. Yeah, and and because I was all, and because I still am all in, like I I feel that responsibility very personally. Um, you know, if when we were close to running out of cash, like I felt the weight of, wait a second, I'm responsible for these people on my team. Like when our product collapsed and we'd let this big customer down it wasn't the case of me being like, okay, we messed up, whatever. Like I felt like I'd you know, broken a promise that I'd, that I'd made to somebody and and I still do today. And I look at, you know, a lot of people who have started businesses, not because they're really passionate about the idea or excited about it, but they've done it because they've spotted an opportunity to make money. And I see the way they operate it and you know, maybe I shouldn't, but I compare it with how I operate. And Honestly, I I feel really thankful that I am all in because the decisions that I'm making, like, yes, there, there, there's you know, some business sort of thinking behind it, but you have that emotional element to it as well. And what that means is that you can take that little bit of magic and throw it in and create something wonderful. Whereas if you are doing it just because, you know, you left your corporate job in the city and you've spotted an opportunity to make loads of money selling socks, um, you know what, you might be really successful with that. But firstly, I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as fun as as doing something because you're actually like crazy passionate and and in love with, with what you're trying to do. But also, I think you're limiting the upside from when you can really figure out what that special trigger is. And also when something goes wrong, I'm not going to hold my hands up and say, hey, sorry, I've let you down. I'm going to go and get another job in the city. I'm going to figure out how to fix it and how to make it right. Whereas, you know, if if you're doing it for other reasons and if you haven't built up that resilience, as soon as you hit a roadblock like that or as soon as something doesn't go to the plan that you put in your 35-page business model, you're going to throw in the towel and, and go elsewhere. So, you know, it's a bit of a blessing and a curse being all in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you feel the weight of that emotion constantly. But honestly, I think it it really allows us to, to create that little spark of magic that has helped to make so post stand out in the market and has helped to make, you know, the culture within the company much more special than just being a, a nine to five. You know, someone turns up, does their job and goes home. Like there's a lot more within it than that.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's about the business kind of being an extension of you. It's kind of part of your identity and, 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 and something that you, um, you draw a lot of your kind of personal image of yourself as tied up with the business. And while that's obviously incredibly difficult in the tough times, it's also incredibly rewarding when the business uh, does well as, as it now is, which is, which is fantastic. So I, I think moving on to Soapost, it might be worth just kind of, because it is quite a kind of uh, future facing uh, kind of tech infused mm-hmm. uh, innovative business, just kind of explaining the basics of, of what you're trying to do with it, with the company.
0: Yeah, of course. So we actually celebrate our ninth birthday in seven days, which is very exciting. Um, And I I say that partly just to say, hey, we've been around for nine years. Isn't that amazing? But also because there are a lot of people sort of beginning to step into our space today. But when we started, there was nobody else doing this. And whilst it might look really obvious in the market today, particularly in this kind of post-COVID world, back then it, it wasn't the case at all. And the original idea for SoPost was really about taking that concept to send social a step further. And it was all about creating this dynamic postal address that was linked to people's social IDs. So instead of your address being a fixed place, I wanted to turn it into where you were or where you wanted stuff to be sent to. So, you know, no more misdeliveries, no more needing to phone you up and saying, Hey, Richard, what's your, what's your postcode? I've got something for you. The, the vision really was that SoPost would be this intelligent, Dynamic addressing layer that would sit between the John Lewis checkout and the DPD delivery truck. Or, you know, I could scribble your email address in an envelope, chuck it in the post box, and Royal Mail would know that, hey, you're in the office on Thursday morning. So that's where it needs to go. So that's where it started. Um, It's obviously not where we are today. Today, um, our focus really is on helping brands, retailers, and publishers run the most powerful product sampling campaigns online with a very strong focus on relevant data. And analytics um which is obviously quite a big shift from <laughs> from that original goal of of reinventing the postal address and yeah. what had happened was that you know when we shut sun social down i went off and, and did some other things and and uh, it's gonna sound cliche but i just couldn't stop thinking about this idea you know i'd be in the pub i'd be thinking about it i'd have dreams about it i'd be at family dinner thinking about it. <laughs> And I was convinced that it hadn't failed because the idea was bad, but that it had failed because of some of the things we talked about earlier, you know, the execution was poor, the team structure was bad, et cetera. And, you know, more than anything else, I kind of just wanted to, to see whether I'd quit uni for the right reasons or not. And so when I launched Soapost, it was really about taking that concept further, but really adapting and learning from a lot of the mistakes that I'd felt we'd made first time around. And one of them was that with Send Social, we'd kind of sat in a silo and spent a year building something without showing it to anyone. So with SoPost, you know, their kind of classic tech thing of building an MVP, which didn't really let people do anything, but it was enough to test the concept. And for me, that really validated a lot of what I was trying to do in terms of does the world want this? Is it a good idea? Like it was a resounding tick, tick, tick against all of those questions. But really quickly, what I realized was that the biggest challenge to... Making this stuff happen on the scale that I wanted to wasn't really on a technical level. It was more, you know, I needed a database of probably ten million people who had connected their Facebook and Twitter accounts with their postal addresses in order to make this thing function. And it was less about the the tech setup and more about the data that we had and. I just wasn't, I couldn't see how I could build that database. You know, retailers wanted to work with me, but they wouldn't until I had the consumer audience and it's hard to sign consumers up without a lot of money or, you know, those kind of partnerships in place. So I was sort of sat there scratching my head, trying to figure out how to take this thing that I knew was a good idea to something which was actually functioning on the global scale that, that I envisaged. But what happened was a couple of weeks before we launched that MVP, I met a guy who was looking after Noel Gallagher's digital marketing. And in hindsight, I'm sure he just saw a very naive 19 or 20-year-old who was about to really not make a success of himself. But we got chatty and I was telling him about you know what I was trying to do. And he basically said, hey, that sounds really cool. We've got this DVD of Noel's tour that, that we're trying to sell. So if you can figure out a way for us to sell more DVDs, Do whatever you're going to do, we'll promote it. And hey, you know what, let's just see what happens. And I thought it was just an incredible opportunity to get some PR behind what I was really trying to do, you know, get this thing sent out to a couple of million people. And so my friend who was building the site um, very kindly for for free for me, did a bit more work and and we built the site where you could buy Knoll's DVD for a friend. But the gimmick was that instead of entering your friend's delivery information, you just tag them on Facebook. And then they got a post on their Facebook wall. If they wanted the DVD, they could click through from something that we embedded in that content. They tell us where to send it to, at which point we build your credit card and the DVD was shipped out. Um, So kind of gimmicky, also kind of fun, small campaign, but it went really well. Um, And then I kind of went back to trying to figure out how to make this other thing happen. Uh, But if you fast forward, so this was December 2012. If you fast forward to late January 2013, I open my emails and I see there's um, an email from um, someone at, at, a small beauty company avon cosmetics oh yeah um, yeah you know her, and i will say you probably can't see me on the podcast but um i'm not naturally <laughs> you know a, a, beauty is something that i d- didn't necessarily know a lot about let alone something. <laughs> but I, I got this email uh, and it basically said hey you know i saw what you did with no gallagher uh can we have that and so i hopped on a train and a boat and a taxi and went to her office on, on the Isle of Wight. And I was met by this incredibly successful woman who was very excited about something. And she basically said to me, look, if you can do this for us, we'll be your first customer. We'll pay you money and we'll work really closely with you to develop this thing that, that we want. And, you know, I had no idea what she was so excited about. I had no idea what she saw. But I was trying to figure out this other thing and, and you know, had this piece of advice in my head, which was choose the path of least resistance. Because I think you know for so long, I was just banging my head against the wall, trying to do this thing and, and not getting anywhere. And I was like, okay, maybe this is a path of maybe not the least resistance, but less resistance. So let's kind of go down that road. And so without really knowing why, I said to Julie, yeah, you know what? I'll do this for you. Um, so then went about you know building team and, and over the next few months built this solution for them, which um, when we launched, it basically allowed the brand to go to their existing customers and say, Hey, you know, thanks for being such a great customer. We know you love our products. Would you like to send a free gift to a friend of yours? And when the penny eventually dropped for me, it was because in that first meeting with Julie, what she had told me was two things. Firstly, personal recommendations were really important for their business. And, you know, if I tell you that this product is great, the impact that that has is much greater than if you see an ad for it um, on TV. And the second thing that was really important for them was trial. She said to me that when people tried their products and liked them, they'd end up spending a lot of money with the brand over three or four years. And essentially what we'd done with Noel Gallagher was a pretty clever combination of those two things. And using our sort of adapted technology, it meant that they could go to their existing customers and kind of combine the power of the personal recommendation with that sampling experience. And so that's really sort of where Soapost, as you see it today, came into being. We launched with them in late, 2013, team of three of us at the time. And back then it was all about allowing brands to drive product sampling experiences online through a gifting element, whether it was over Facebook or Twitter or through email. Um, and then over the years that followed, we kind of did more of that. And, and you know, we were able to win some incredible um brands. You know, we worked with um some of the biggest sort of beauty and, and food and beverage brands in the UK, which was really extraordinary. And today we're now a company of about 70 people. We've got offices in Newcastle, London, New York, Paris. We're about to open in Berlin. Um, and we're really sort of leading the charge in terms of online sampling. And so while SoPost started as this you know, vision to change the way the postal system worked, where we've really found our value in our niche, and it's not really a niche anymore, but it's, it's really in helping brands run incredibly powerful sampling experiences online, but with that focus on relevant data and analytics and, and really just helping them bring this trial stuff into the 21st century, they don't need to stand in a shop and give products away and hope for the best anymore. They can use us to do it really intelligently through online channels. Okay. Okay. So I guess back in kind
1: of late 2013, this this online product sampling revolution was was kind of probably just getting underway in earnest in the same way that e-commerce around the same time was also starting to, to take off. So I suppose looking back, And obviously, looking at where the company is today, was Soapost kind of like a a first mover in this online product sampling space?
0: Yeah, we very much were. Um, And, you know, I I wouldn't say it was even getting underway. in earnest back in late 2013, I'd say Julie really was ahead of the curve by quite some way. Um, And, you know, I'd go into into pictures. And what was nice was I didn't need to convince these brands that they should be sampling because they knew that worked and they had a lot of money allocated to that. But what really was a struggle was convincing them that they should do it online rather than yeah. in the more traditional, traditional routes. And yeah, we were, we were the only people doing it at the time. Um, for the first few years, we were the only people doing it. And then, you know, it, it's really only been since COVID hit that, in the UK, anyway, the space is really hotted up. Um, and what we see today is a lot of people, and it annoys me and it bugs me so much, and it'll probably end up giving me a heart attack. But you know, all these people who, who copy us to the point where they're taking graphics from our website or they're copying language on our pages or just literally ripping pages out of our presentations, it's not even like we've inspired them. It literally is they look at us and they think, wow, like those guys are the people we need to be. Let's just steal from them. Um, which you know it's humbling to to know that we were first mover and we have such a big need on everybody else but it's also quite infuriating that people you know can't innovate for themselves
1: yeah I think um you know one of the things I wanted to ask you is kind of looking back now what you've learned about this kind of nexus between marketing and retail and technology and and e-commerce um I think the competitiveness in the market now is probably a a key a key learning for you but what are some of the other kind of things that you think you've kind of picked
0: up yeah I mean maybe this has been too blunt but I've learned there's a lot of crap out there like I used to get really sort of nervous when I was you know looking at not necessarily something, but looking at what other you know, companies were doing in this space, or I'd be at you know pitch events. I'm like, wow, those people all have all have it together, and they're doing this amazing stuff. But what I've learned is that actually a lot of them really, firstly, don't really know what they're talking about, and secondly, they don't actually work. You know, they've they've managed to build like a good PR picture and put a nice marketing front on it, um, and there's all this sort of budget flowing through them. But actually, when you dig into it, it's like, oh, actually it's not the greatest solution or, you know, it's doing stuff in a way that might you know, drive a business goal. I say that in um, quote marks because it always makes me yeah. laugh when people talk like that. Um, but it, it's not necessarily doing it in sort of a, a, a consumer-focused way. You know, if yeah. you think about when the GDPR rules came in, that was amazing for us because we've always sort of, when we've been building our experiences out, We've kind of thought about it from the perspective of us as consumers, not us as a company that's trying to exploit consumer data to make money, which meant that, you know, when the rules around data changed, a lot of these companies were suddenly like, oh, wait, we can't do this creepy stuff we've been doing all along. Whereas for us, it was like, cool, business as usual. And because they can't do all that creepy stuff now, people are going to, you know, we're going to kind of win off the back of it. Yeah. Do, do you think as well, Johnny, kind of, you know, I know you're,
1: so you're 30 years old now and, and, and- being the kind of young entrepreneur as well and, 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 you know, moving into some of those spaces where, Oh, you know, he, he's like young and enthusiastic, but he hasn't kind of been through it and like rites of passage and all that sort of stuff. I, I imagine you've came up against some of that, but actually in the space that you're operating in, when it is so new and this, this e-commerce uh, online product sampling revolution is such a new concept. Actually it, it's actually a huge advantage, maybe being a young entrepreneur.
0: Oh, I think so. Yeah. Um, honestly, I don't feel that young anymore, but <laughs> I think, I think I am at an advantage cause I've, you know, I've grown up with Facebook. I've grown up with Snapchat and, and Instagram. And, you know, I, I think if you're, cause we're not inventing a new industry, but what we have done is really moved it into the 21st century. And I think it's a lot harder to, do something like that if you're, if you're coming at it from the old way of thinking. Whereas for me, you know, I had no particular engagement or interest in product sampling prior to Soapost. And maybe what that just meant was that I was looking at it through a different lens than everyone else. And now, you know, I'm, I can't really share too much of the R&D that we're working on, but, you know, I'm convinced that nobody else has even thought about the stuff that we're, we're going to be releasing soon. And, You know, some of that is, yes, we understand how brands operate. We understand what the sweet spot for retailers is. But I think the more important aspect of it is, you know, we're looking at it through this lens of what is technology capable of? And, you know, what are the things that are unique to us that mean that when you couple that with this challenge around making products, something better, you create that magical experience or that magical product that just hasn't been there before. And, you know, I, I think there probably is an argument to say, you know, age can help or or hinder that, um, which I, I'd probably agree with. But I think just as important is, you know, being able to to approach things differently and come into a sector where, you know, perhaps you're not entitled to be there, regardless of whether you're 20 or 40 or or 70 years old.
1: Yeah, I think having that kind of disruptive mindset, maybe, yeah. and and it's it's really kind of interesting to hear that that what next? Even though the company's successful, you've opened offices, you know, all over the world now you've you know and, and it would be very easy to just kind of sit back relax uh w- watch the the revenues
0: that would boring. be boring richard that no would but be yeah <laughs>
1: you, you've never kind of lost that that sense of right okay we've been really successful with this but what's next yeah and and one of the things i wanted to ask you is kind of advice for other entrepreneurs who might be a little bit earlier in their kind of journey um and and also, what, what do you think makes a good entrepreneur as well? Do you think it is that kind of insatiable appetite for finding what's next?
0: So if, if I start with a piece of advice, I'd probably pass on a piece of advice that I was given a while back, which really did help me change the way I approach things, which was to choose the path of least resistance. Because for me, and I touched on it earlier, I was always sort of so focused on this end goal that... I kind of didn't really consider how I could get there. And, you know, I was basically doing the same thing day in and day out for two years and not getting any different results. And then, the, you know, when I sort of adopted this mindset of what is the path of least resistance, it made me realize that there are probably a thousand different ways to get to that destination. And it might be a bit of a Trojan horse in, in a way, you know, you can do something in order to achieve that. And, and get there that way. And, and then, you know, what ultimately happened for me was that the goal changed as well because, you know, initially we'd started the sampling in order to help achieve that original vision around the postal system. And I think we probably could have got there, but I actually got into this and I was like, wow, it's really different, but actually there's an incredible opportunity here as well. And it's very exciting. And so actually let's, you know, kind of focus on that as well. And I think in terms of, you know, what makes a, a good entrepreneur, I think, firstly, resilience is is very important. Um, but I think, you know, humility and, and pragmatism are critical as well. Um, you know, I, I think if you've got a strong ego or you need to be right about everything or, or seem to be right about everything, it's going to be really difficult for you to succeed. Whereas, actually, if you say, you know what, I'm in this, <laughs> I don't care about people thinking I'm stupid. I don't care about messing things up. It's a lot easier for you to find the thing that does work and then build on that yeah
1: I think that that blue sky thinking and 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 um looking at the big picture is super um, important and, and, and sort of anchors your um, day-to-day activities and it's the why, The you know, people come back to this this why is is super important. But from your experience, uh, Johnny, if you had just continued down the road of this, creating a dynamic postal address, tied to people's uh, social media accounts, disrupting the, the postal system, if you'd been so kind of rigidly committed to that, you might have actually passed up this online product yeah. sampling opportunity, which is now, you know, th- the absolute root of the company's success and its global expansion, isn't it? So it's that, yeah, I think um,
0: I think pragmatism and, and and open-mindedness as well, maybe. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I think you've just got to be... Because, yeah, I mean, the thing is when you're starting a business, like... <laughs> nothing is in your favor the whole world is against you and frankly nobody cares about what you're doing so I think you're you're, you've got a much better chance of maximizing your opportunity for success if you're not focused on just one thing I think it's really important to have a north star and and you know values and, and things that guide you but if you're just so committed to this one thing and doing it this one way my experience anyway is that it's quite difficult to to succeed like that brilliant brilliant well thanks so much johnny it, it's been fan-
1: fascinating speaking to you your your uh, your journey it's 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 so it's so different i think to the the route that a lot of entrepreneurs take and yeah thanks again for for, for taking the time to talk through all that stuff with us i really
0: appreciate oh, well, it thank you for having me it's been a pleasure um brilliant and yeah i hope i hope it's been enjoyable to your listeners <laughs>
1: Well, that was certainly enjoyable for me. Uh, I mean, there are very few entrepreneurs who can say they started out in business while they were still a teenager. But what really strikes me about Johnny is his belief and commitment to the businesses he's been involved with all throughout his adult life. All of the distractions that come with with growing up and, and moving on and moving out. You know, Johnny's never really lost sight of that enthusiasm for business uh, that you know he first identified like i say when he was still a teenager so he's always gone all in and i, and I think that's a really important takeaway from this talking about so post johnny said there were so many times that the business should have died uh, whether it be running out of money or whether it be the platform going down at a critical time for an important customer um but what kept it going was johnny's failure is not an option mindset and I think what his example shows is that if you're a company founder, um, your business is an extension of you. It's part of your identity. And when bad things happen, as they invariably do, you take that personally. But it also means all the victories are, are your victories. And, you know, Johnny, Johnny said Post would never made it as far as it has if he wasn't all in. So I think that's a really important thing to think about. The second takeaway is all about pragmatism and open-mindedness. Johnny had a really clear vision when he set up Soapost in 2012 that he wanted to disrupt the postal system, create these postal addresses tied to people's social media accounts. But through the conversations he had on the journey with that business, he came across this online product sampling idea, which is obviously where Soapost has made its money today. Now, he could have been really rigid and dogmatic at the time and passed up that opportunity and if he had we wouldn't be talking to him today so I think the key point here is have conversations keep an open mind and don't be afraid to change course if something better comes along so thanks again to Johnny good luck to him in the business I'm sure the future is really bright for Soapost and thanks for listening